0: Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by Alan Burgo, the forager chef, to discuss wild harvesting with a soft focus on water plants. His experience as a high-end chef and traditional food expert imparts an exciting and delicious twist to the wild food movement. After reading his cookbook, Flora, and poring over his website, foragerchef.com, It's impossible to not have your wild plant perceptions altered and inspirations ignited by new culinary potential. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Absolutely. My name is Alan Burgo. I'm a chef, a forager, an author. I'm the host of a show called Field Forest Feast that is streaming right now on Tastemade, and it's actually up for a 2022 James Beard Award. I spent 15 years in the culinary industry. I'm a chef by trade. That is what I thought that my career would always be. But what happened is, as I started working in nicer and nicer restaurants, I started to see that the most expensive and the most precious things that were coming into the restaurant were wild. And I was working at a place called Heartland where the menu changed every single day. And I wrote the menu for my station, you know, whatever it was on. I was sous chef there. And I started getting exposed to all these ingredients and also being taught how to cook them and intuitively identify them by working with them, cooking with them, tasting them, serving them to others by being immersed in an environment where I was getting taught about wild plants and mushrooms on the job, I was really primed to see them in the wild. And I like to play disc golf. So I was playing disc golf one day and I saw one of the mushrooms, it was a chicken of the woods growing on a tree. And I had just cleaned that mushroom for the menu in the restaurant the day before. And it was like a light bulb went off. And after that, I I just knew that it wasn't something that was crazy unattainable. I knew that wild food was more about timing and from there I bought myself every piece of mushroom, wild mushroom literature that I could find and I started teaching myself about it and I would, I got good enough, fast enough, because I already knew a lot of the most high value mushrooms and products, uh, I started cooking with them on the menu and really, really enjoying cooking the individual species of mushrooms differently and eventually I moved on to plants because sometimes you go out and you don't find mushrooms and I wanted to know more more plants because I knew that there was just I felt like there was a lot of untapped culinary potential in kind of the wild spaces that were all around me I also started writing a website kind of like a as a personal journal and a place to to put up interesting things I was I was cooking or plants or mushrooms that I was harvesting and identifying them, and I wrote the website for many years while I had my own restaurants. Eventually, restaurants, you know, they close. Every restaurant I've worked at has closed, and I was really heartbroken after the last restaurant closed. So I didn't go right back to the culinary industry. I kind of made a name for myself cooking with the things that I was doing and just doing what I was doing. Uh, I supplied my restaurants with commercial quantities of, you know, plants and mushrooms when I was running them, and I kind of started to just go off and do my own thing. I did some consulting and things like that, and eventually during the pandemic, I filmed my show with my video partner, Jesse Ressler, who won his James Beard Award for his first feature film, The Starfish Throwers, and I started doing other things, and eventually I worked out a model where I can hunt. Wild plants and mushrooms as my full time job and tell people how to cook them. And I probably won't be back in the kitchen again, but I have a strange combination of professional culinary experience and working with. I am not an expert on identifying plants and mushrooms, but I work with experts in those fields, mycologists. Sam Thayer is a good friend of mine. I was actually just picking some swamp saxifrage shoots uh, in his creek on the land where he has his cabin just before I came here. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. I also had my first book came out last year. It's called The Forager Chef's Book of Flora. That's kind of all about exploring plants from the wild, but also plants from the garden. And kind of what wild cooking with wild plants taught me that were that was new about All the vegetables and a lot of the vegetables that I cook, just conventional vegetables. So that's kind of a nutshell.
0: Something that I do find to be particularly fascinating about your book and your approach is that you do come from the angle of a chef. Because often in foraging guides, they'll tell you how to identify the plant and how to harvest, but not how to prepare it in a very interesting way. And in your book, you also go into other cultural ways of preparing plants that are considered might be overlooked by gardeners.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I think uh, kind of makes what I do special is that that you're talking about exactly what I saw when I started getting into getting interested in wild food. I started to see. You know, I mean, some of the books will have, like, pictures of food and stuff people have made, and none of it looked good to me. And I just, I I thought this, the food, the consumption, this is the missing part, you know? So I like to think of my work as, like, a culinary companion to all the field guides out there that I could never even begin to write anything similar to what the, the real experts do. So the food and the, the preparation is really kind of like the missing piece of the equation for me to really bring more people into a, a state of mind where they have an appreciation for wild plants and things that people, you know, some of them people might call weeds as food because they are food and the what you're talking about with the cultural part so the ethnobotany I don't I don't think people think about that enough I mean, take nettles, for example. They're super common. Everybody knows them. Nettles are a food plant. They've been, they're have been they harvested around the world as a food plant. All kinds of different species. Uh, in Nepal, one of my favorites is this big Nepali nettle. They make it into fiber. It's similar to hemp, but nettles are in the cannabinaceae, so they're related to hemp. Hop shoots, too. And you can make fiber out of them and it was actually very popular before wool like back in the middle ages so it's a plant with so many different uses it's super healthy it's and it's just delicious you know but they're used all over the world in spain and mexico you have sopa de ortigas you know nettles are a very good soup plant for soup in italy you have ortique you know these plants have been used all over scandinavia like my ancestors i'm pretty scandinavian Nossel sopa they're spring a traditional spring plant and in the summer uh, there's scottish recipes they call specifically for the young growing tops of nettles. they're they're a plant that's eaten as a food all over the world and looking at those culinary traditions and you know specific recipes and things is one of the best ways to teach yourself about how to cook with different plants because there's already a culinary tradition with them. It's just not American, right? So people have been making traditional foods in a particular way for a reason. And, you know, no matter how you cook them, there's a lot that you can learn and little nuggets about, oh, how we can prepare things a certain way or why we do it one way. Do I blanch the nettles or do I steam them or do I crush them with a rolling pin like in turkey and eat them raw in a salad. You know, there's all kinds of little lessons, like, hidden inside recipes, uh, traditional recipes, especially.
0: Mm -hmm. What's your favorite way to eat nettles?
1: Steamed with butter and salt at the table.
0: Okay. Something that I like about nettles and harvesting and looking into how other cultures will prepare the foods is it tunes you into the seasons because they all come on at different times.
1: Yeah. And another thing it does is it kind of turns on your intuition and you will instinctively know eventually when you need to go out and get XYZ thing or when it's going to be at the perfect stage for eating. You know, it's an instinct that's like trapped in every single person. And it's kind of like having an, a a bike or a musical instrument that you, your ancestors knew how to play, and it's like knocking the dust off of it. You don't have to build the, you know, the bike or the, the violin from scratch. It's already there. You just, have to, you just have to knock the dust off a little bit, and, and it comes right back. Hmm.
0: So what are some of your favorite water plants?
1: Water plants. I mean, they, they're so special. They scared me, actually, for for a long time, because, you know, you hear the words like water hemlock. Watercress, I eat a lot of watercress. I really love cattail shoots. Actually, just, just this morning when I was with Sam Thayer, we were talking about a show that we're going to do for Daniel Vitalis' show on the Outdoor Channel, and he was talking about some of the ingredients he was going to harvest. Some new things. I always learn a new plant with Sam. The new things I've never even thought about harvesting, or I have no idea that they even exist. But cattail lateral rhizomes. I've never really been too good at getting them. I've gotten them a few times, and they are so good. It's like oop. It's like a vegetable just pops out of the ground, like a legitimate vegetable, and it's soft and it's tender and it's delicious. Um, We're going to work with those. I also like the shoots. I get a little bit less volume from the shoots when I harvest them because so much of the outside sheath, depending on er, exactly when it's harvested, needs to be taken away for it to not be kind of styrofoamy. I love cattails. Uh, I've never been too good at getting the pollen, but I really like cooking with pollen. Uh, I harvest a lot of pine pollen, and I can use that kind of interchangeably with it. Oh, really? Cutleaf water parsnip is on my list this year to to finally get to try. That is that was in Sam Thayer's latest guide, Incredible Wild Edibles, and there's there should be a whole bunch where I am in Western Wisconsin, and that's been on my list. But it's one that I probably want to have Sam show me first. Mm-hmm. The, the name is cutleaf water parsnip. You know, it's
0: yeah, <laughs> it's a dangerous family. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that those are probably my favorites. Wapato. Oh, I love wapato too. Uh, I've only had some small ones, and sometimes the cattail mat in places where I see it is so thick I can't even get through it. So I'd really like to find another good uh, a good wapato patch because those are really delicious too. And just a, just a beautiful, cool plant.
0: Can you run through what the the botanical names of those plants are?
1: Uh okay. Wapato Sagittarius latifolia. Uh, watercress nasturtium officinale, and cutleaf water parsnip ooh you're testing me here (laughs) cium suave
0: okay and with typha is it multiple species or any one particular species
1: Uh, we have an invasive one and we have the most common one here and the invasive one or the non-native one I don't know exactly which one it is it's a little bit smaller so I don't really bother with it
0: okay I guess when we're talking about water plants, we should touch on some of the warnings and cautions, things to be aware of when wild harvesting in water.
1: Absolutely. One of the first things I think of, because I harvest water plants in Wisconsin, places I go when I travel, and depending on where I am, it may affect how I cook the watercress. So for example, Arizona... I have a lot of family in Arizona. My dad just built a house down there. I go down there all the time to see my grandparents. There's places in Arizona you can get watercress. Arizona also is like notorious for having polluted water, mm-hmm. so I can't help myself, and I want to harvest some. <laughs> so I blanch it, and then I'll let it soak in water, and I'll cook it longer than I typically would, and it's it's in water to you know. Get out things that are water soluble, but I also will like soak it in water, uh, which is an Italian trick that they use for uh, like bitter asters, and I'll I'll let it soak after I blanch it for a while, and then I'll fry it up and eat it. And I don't eat too much of it, you know, but I have to have a little bit, so I I treat it a little bit differently. Another thing, so I think about the water quality and the place I am, you know, that that's very important. In Wisconsin, I feel really blessed because a lot of the stuff is from springs that are perpetually going and it's not like still water i like to harvest it from moving water use your senses and you need to know what's in the stream not just in the stream right where you are but where the water is coming from so mm-hmm. animal carcasses being upstream is another thing to know about but even so cooking is a kill step so th- You can also cook your watercress. A lot of people don't know that you can cook watercress. We think of it as something like, you know, that British people put on a tea sandwich or like you get in a little clump at a steakhouse. To me, watercress is a vegetable to be cooked like any other leafy green. And it's mild and delicious and just wonderful. And I can eat more of it when I cook it. Mm -hmm. Liver fluke is the other thing. And that is, you know, I'm up in Wisconsin here, so it's really cold. So when I've spoken to Sam about this, he's basically told me that it's probably pretty darn cold for liver fluke, and it's harvesting it if it's underneath the water or getting the water on the plants is when you need to worry about liver fluke. So if you cook it, there's absolutely no worries. As a kill step, it will kill the liver fluke. It's if you harvest the plants when they're maybe below the water, you don't want to pick them below the water line, especially if you live in a place... That doesn't have really cold winters. But even if you do harvest it below the waterline, you can cook it, and it's a kill step. But generally speaking, you're going to get a better harvest. You're going to get a better quality vegetable from harvesting it when it's taller. Probably not when it's flowering, because it can be tougher and kind of leggy. But generally, I cook it for, for those a, a number of different reasons. And I can freeze it, and I can eat. You know, I might eat six, eight ounces in a single meal so it makes it easier to eat too
0: so what is your favorite way to prepare watercress
1: okay so this is a fun fun thing that i mentioned in my book and i came up with it specifically for watercress so a lot of times you know in wild food literature and it and all over it's recommended to blanch like people just blanch like instinctively blanch all the plants well I think where most of that technique comes from is when people were harvesting greens that were like really bitter, which is really common all over the world. Not every plant needs to be blanched. So what I do with watercress and they're going to the plants are going to taste better because when you're blanching them, you're putting them in boiling water and a lot of the a lot of the goodness comes out, a lot of those tasty, you know, water-soluble compounds, they come out into the water and you end up with greens especially if you don't add salt to the water. You end up with greens that taste like nothing. And then people eat them and they're like, oh, I guess wild food sucks. It's like, well, no, maybe it doesn't. Maybe just try cooking them a different way. So I came up with this thing I call steam wilting. And I put like a finger's height of water into a tall pot, like a soup pot. And then I'll fill the pot with watercress. And then I turn the heat on high. And I stir it a couple times as it's getting hot to really distribute the heat well. And then when it's tender and it tastes good to me, I take it out, I drain it, I put it hot onto a plate, and I put butter and salt on it or lemon juice and a little olive oil or whatever fat that I want. And it's just wonderful. And a lot of different greens like that, a lot of different greens can be cooked like that. But watercress is one of the best because it cooks very evenly, like right now, the nettle stems—you uh, might be fighting with them a little bit if you cook them like that. They might be better steamed or blanched, which is you know more aggressive and will make things tender faster.
0: What about typha? What's your favorite way to eat typha?
1: Uh, okay. So I think my favorite is probably with the shoots, just because I I'm not too good at getting the lateral rhizomes. So I take the shoots and I peel any of that styrofoamy outside off and then I cut them into pieces and I cook them with a little bit of oil and a little bit of vinegar just enough to make them kind of sparkle and salt and maybe some herbs a little bit of thyme and then I add some extra you know good tasting oil whatever I have like you would use on a salad and it's kind of like a relish and I put on all kinds of things. Uh, you could probably even can it it 's really good with fish uh, or warmed up and put onto a salad it's really, really good it kind of they kind of have an artichoke taste to them
0: If you use pine pollen interchangeably, how would you prepare either typha pollen or pine pollen
1: well it's tricky, so first you got to figure out the first first part of that is figuring out how you can actually get enough pollen to cook with because the harvesting season can be extremely short it's a it is the pine pollen i have like one day when it is optimal and i have to get there and i have to go to a place that has a windbreak, because otherwise it'll just blow right off the trees i mean that's what they're designed to do Mm -hmm. so i get there at the optimal optimal time for harvesting and i try to get like I got a couple gallons last year and I spent an entire day, an entire day, all I did was harvest pollen, right? So just dedicate my entire day to it. And then it keeps in the freezer, like basically indefinitely, but you can use it in like up to 30% mix of flour and baked goods. And it adds this like, this like fudgy quality to say like cornbread is really, really good. Especially when you put, you know, a little bit of butter and honey on it afterward. The pollen and the honey. I love pollen and honey together. Adding it to baked goods is really good. And then I think my favorite last year is I was inspired by these traditional Chinese springtime treats where they take pollen and they mix it with honey and mix it up until they become almost like a dough. And then they knead that between four fingers or like three fingers, into a little cone shape, and you eat this little sweet cone of pure pollen with chopsticks. And it kind of melts in your mouth. It's They're just delicious, and it really gives you a true taste of the pollen, because pollen does have a taste. If you eat just a small amount of it, you're not going to taste it. You need to have it in a concentrated form. So it's kind of this like biscuity, toasty, almost like a yeasty Sort of quality, it's really good. It's more like toasty, like sweet biscuits or something. It, it's hard, very hard to describe, but it's really good.
0: Hmm. And so what about the Sagittaria? You called it...
1: Oh, yeah, Wapato's an indigenous name. Mm-hmm. Uh, duck potatoes.
0: What do you do with it?
1: I'll cook them in a pan with a little bit of oil and a pinch of salt and, until they're tender. And then eat them as a vegetable.
0: Okay. When you're saying that harvesting the pine, pollen, is just one day, are there other plants that just have such a small window for harvest?
1: That is the smallest one that I think I have seen. I think most, most of the stuff that I harvest has a much, much more generous window. Uh, the black locust flowers. Those are, those are similar. Probably a little bit more of a forgiving window than pollen, but they're they're probably the most similar I know of. They're just, they're just so delicate.
0: What do you do with them?
1: I do all kinds of things with them. Those I dry, and I may infuse them into things. They they infuse really well into cream. They kind of have this, like leguminous vanilla taste to them. Uh, I also make them into. It's kind of hard to describe. It's almost like a marzipan paste but it's kind of made with bread and then I use it as a sweet filling for crepes and it's green and it kind of tastes like sweet wheat grass
0: wow just touching back on the the nettles for a second when you're saying that different traditions use like have different traditional recipes for them sort of in talking about the harvest windows can you use the plant at different times like so there's the, the young shoots in the spring is highly anticipated but what about older nettles can anything be done other than rope
1: well like I talked about so in Scotland there's a traditional dish called hodgepodge and I found a couple different re- references to it and I really noticed that they called specifically for the tops right so what is the top the top is the meristem it's the young growing tissue it's meristematic young, growing, tender plant tissue. It's what the animals are going to eat. It's the young, tender tips. So if it's tender and you cook it and it tastes good to you, I would say that that is good. When they go to seed, then everything starts to change and they get stringy, the leaves are stringy. Uh, So I'd never harvest them if they have seed heads. But you can dehydrate them and they do make a a good tea.
0: When you mentioned earlier that you came to foraging through mushrooms. How did you get into identifying mushrooms in the wild safely?
1: Well, so like I said, I kind of learned on the job. So there is something different about reading, reading about a wild mushroom in a field guide or in a resource online or seeing a picture in a Facebook group and saying, oh, that looks like that mushroom. It is very different to go out by yourself mm-hmm. and to harvest something and to be very sure of your identification and then cook that and put it inside of your body, yeah. especially when we live in a fungophobic society where we have this, you know, Anglo-Saxon prejudice against mushrooms is like, you know, tools of witches and occultists and things like that. That's, that's really deep and it's, and it's embedded in the American subconscious. It's changing, but it's still there. But eventually, I had to branch out, and I want I would find mushrooms, and I didn't know what they were. So, you know, I was reading. I read a lot, and I was into hunting mushrooms before there was an online anything about it. Like, it was like pr- almost pre-Facebook, so the resources were very slim. All you had was field guides and like mushroom clubs, and I made friends. My friends were good mushroom hunters. I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of great mushroom hunters. Having someone show you something in the wild is the best and the fastest way to learn. So I started hanging out with people that knew what they were doing. And I learned very quickly. You know, and now it's like I go into the woods. It's like, I th- it's like being in a grocery store and seeing a mushroom is like picking a banana off the shelf. I know them so cold and so well, that I would I would never, ever, you know, misidentify one of the things that I'm very familiar with eating. And after a while, your instincts, we undervalue our instincts. It's well and good to have some caution if you, you know, eat amanitas like I do, intentionally. Uh, <laughs> but people can yeah. just, they can just harvest things that they know, and it's fine to just, you know, you have, have four or five mushrooms that you know, but learning in person is the best
0: did you find the transition to plants to be quite easy
1: no it was incredibly difficult when i went outside all i saw was a complete solid wall of green every single leaf looked the same every single plant looked the same and i know this is the same case for many many people uh i was just at a farm doing a plant walk and a dinner this past weekend and you know another chef was there very talented guy but he had to double check a couple things with me and it kind of it kind of brought me back. And I said, oh yeah, I remember when everything was just a wall of green.
0: So as you said with the mushrooms, would you suggest that if somebody's just coming into foraging to find somebody who knows to show them rather than to look online or to look to books?
1: I recommend they do all of that. So I think each of those things that you mentioned is a tool and What I have for identification and learning is a kit of tools. Each one of those is one tool in a kit, and you should try to learn and be proficient with all of them. But the first one should be finding someone in person.
0: Hmm. Depending, of course, upon the, the guidebooks that you get, but something that is often lacking in the identification is exactly what you were talking about earlier in being tuned into the season, the time of year, where that plant tends to grow the communities of plants that tend to congregate, that kind of stuff that will more often come from an experienced forager rather than from a book.
1: Yeah, so like in, in some guidebooks, maybe there's only space for so many pictures. And to like, to intimately know a plant, there are so many different stages of growth and, and you know, transformations it may go through. Especially when you're just starting out, like you can look at something and it'll say, "Oh, there's all kinds of scientific terminology, and the, the flower shapes are this way." Are all kinds of different words that you don't you don't know what they mean, and then maybe there's only a couple pictures. You know, take Angelica for example. We have uh, Angelica trapezoid here, and it's uh, I really really love that plant. You need like ten pictures. Like, for a really intimate knowledge, you need pictures of the root, pictures of the root cut in half, pictures of the root coming into the ground, where the the plant grows, typical types of terrain. Is it on a stream? Is it in just a wet area? Is it on the side of the road? What are the early spring shoots look like? Is it purple when it's really cold when it's first coming up? What's the color of the stem? Does the color change? Uh, Like all the different parts of the plant and you know that's only the beginning you know going into bef- before it makes this giant flower stalk, and then different individual pictures of the leaves <laughs> all the everything you need so many pictures for a really intimate knowledge
0: did you find that learning the plant families helped
1: oh absolutely the plant and the mushroom families and It can be overwhelming for people at first, you know, the Latin words will just make their head spin, but the most important thing about it is that the Latin name of something can only mean one thing. Common names are imprecise and while they're useful in some contexts, they're imprecise and depending on what you're talking about, it could be wrong and it could be dangerous. So perfect example here is beefsteak mushroom okay beefsteak mushroom this can mean a polypore fistulina hepatica that you can eat raw and has a very gentle kind of like sorrel note to it and beefsteak also refers to a number of different types of gyromitra which like morel's are toxic raw and are probably responsible for many, many, many mushroom poisonings every single year in the United States because they need, many of them need proper prep preparation to be edible and not make you sick when you eat them. Hmm. But they can both be referred to as a beefsteak. Hmm.
0: Do you find also that the plant families, or I guess mushroom families, can give some inspiration for preparation like potentially you could interchange them or yeah absolutely flavors
1: and and this is something that i i wrote about in my book so i wanted to find a way to kind of codify and quantify what i was tasting because i've tasted and eaten a lot of different things right and i started to notice that certain plant families had specific tastes and foragers know this But sometimes they have trouble articulating it. So as I sometimes do, I made up some phrases or words that I find extremely helpful. I wrote a whole keynote on it that I'm giving to 1,200 chefs for the American Culinary Federation. It's called Acquired Taste, Plant Families and the Flavors They Share. And these botanical families often have similar tastes. Carrots are a really, really good example. So celery roots kind of has a really strong parsley taste so does parsley a lot of the spices in the carrot family Mm -hmm. a lot of the spices we use are from the carrot family if a a recipe is a song or a a plate of food is a song those spices while they taste different like fennel and coriander taste different they but they hit the same note in the song if you interchange them if that makes any sense so you can kind of think of things like that, interchanging things. For example, you may make in my book there's a recipe for the carrot family soup, and it's working and tweaking Mirepoix, which is basically an adaption of a French technique, like they will have white mirepoix for a soup or regular mirepoix a regular mirepoix is carrot onion celery. Then white mirepoix like would be leek could be leek, onion and celery with no carrot. I would say you can maybe take the leeks out or keep the leeks in and then add some celery root too in addition, uh, which is common in Eastern Europe and Germany and things like that. And now you have a different carrot family plant, that celery root, which will uh, give you a different note in your complete song of the recipe and and more specifically the taste that you're trying to create.
0: Hmm. So it's a lot more complex than just simply like bitters or interchanging a anise flavor. It's really looking for a specific note within the family and sort of playing with or riffing on that theme.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, asters have, strangely, oddly enough, asters have kind of like a celery taste, which is kind of counterintuitive to what I just said because celery is in the carrot family. Uh, but it's the best way to describe the taste. So they have kind of this strong like celery quality to them. And different plants in, in the aster family will have kind of a different variation or their own take on it. Or it's really, really amplified and strong like goldenrod. It's incredibly strong tasting. It's also edible. Uh, but it's got a really strong aster taste to it. Artichokes and sunflowers both taste of aster's to me. And they have a very similar, similar flavor because they're related. So Mm -hmm. one thing I like to do that can, you know, kind of give people a paradigm shift sometimes is like when you think about eating an artichoke, you know, I don't really think you can say that it tastes like an artichoke because sunflowers taste like an artichoke too, when you cook the, the young green heads, which are just unopened flowers like artichokes. So can we actually think of it as like artichoke flavor? when it's actually just a set of aromatic compounds found in a whole bunch of different plants within a specific family.
0: Hmm. Do you know what the compound is? (laughs) I guess it's a combination, probably. And
1: I think think if scientists found something, narrowed it down, they would probably name it Aster Compound.
0: Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I heard you speak about thistle having that flavor. Yes.
1: And here's the thing, I don't know the exact species that I was eating, but I found these beautiful thistle roots when I was filming a different show in the British Columbia. And I ended up cooking them for the culinary competition that was at the end after I was in the wilderness for the better part of a week without food, water, or shelter, or a sleeping bag. And they taste, I boiled them and sauteed them up in some butter. They turn gray and they taste like an artichoke. They're absolutely delicious.
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, salsify is similar. Okay. And scorzonera, So, you know, those are are asters too. And people have long said that they taste like artichoke.
0: When you mentioned Jerusalem artichoke or sunchoke, do you have any uh, favorite way to consume them?
1: Absolutely. In the kitchen, we would call them fartichokes. Yeah, exactly. So... (laughs) What I do, my favorite, my all-time favorite thing to do is to preferably get some that are long and not extremely knobby, or if they're really knobby, you can kind of square them off and make them rectangular, and then I peel them, and then I cook them very slowly in butter, and when the pan gets brown or it starts to get a little bit of caramelization, I add just a splash of water. And then I cover the pan, and I shake the pan, and then I take the lid off, and I cook the juices down again. And then I add more water, and I repeat the process until those, the natural sugars come out into the water and start to make a sort of all-natural, like, sugar-free, sweet glaze. Wow. And then the sunchokes get cooked slowly, glazed in their own juices and natural sugars, Until they're like these brown caramelized jewels. And then I serve them and they almost taste like sweet potatoes or something.
0: Wow. So you mentioned a few things throughout that you are currently doing. You sound very busy. What projects are you currently involved in?
1: Well, i got a couple dinners and things coming up. I'm going to be working on another episode of Daniel Vitalis' show in the fall. The other show that I was talking about will come out on a major streaming service, I can't say yet, probably in the next month or two. I usually work with a distillery where I harvest a bunch of plants and we make uh, make about a thousand bottles of liqueur a year. We're still kind of figuring out if that's going to go on for 2022. And then most of the time I'm outside discovering plants and mushrooms and gorging myself on them
0: (laughs) that sounds delightful (laughs) it is (laughs) something that you have mentioned a few times and touched on is that ancestral sort of knowledge of reconnecting with that instinct with plants when did you feel that start to really kick in for you if at first everything just looked green
1: I started to really notice it with the mushrooms, and then I think I was more primed to notice it with the plants. I was just like, man, I'm, I habitually go when I'm looking for something, so let's say I'm looking for chanterelles. I started to notice, like, when I'm in a place where the chanterelles are not going to grow, my mind is categorizing and cataloging all of these things subconsciously, and it feels like having a spider sense, Right? like my mushroom spidey sense and when i go into the right type of woods uh for example in northwestern wisconsin and central minnesota where hunting the best is probably cantharol spasmatis the ghost chanterelle, and it really loves bur oak above all the other trees and when i start seeing bur oak and woods that are open and maybe have some patches of you know sun coming down through the canopy oh i start to get excited and and i just i know they're there before i even see them i can and now i can drive by at 60 miles an hour and i can say this is a spot okay pull over and you you just know you become so in tune to things like i say in the show it's it's kind of just like seeing an old friend like you don't forget
0: do you think part of it is unconsciously tuning into the plant communities like what tends to grow together and observe I think that's one part of it
1: yeah I I think like seeing companion plants that's absolutely a part of it
0: and would you say that the other part is just sort of allowing the awareness to open up like that kind of thing doesn't sound like it can be practiced
1: (laughs) yeah I think it's not it's not very difficult you know I, another thing i've referred to it as is the neanderthal reward system like we me want food food good you know we're looking for food we we get rewarded when we can sustain ourselves and sustain others so it is we are primed for to feel good you know finding wild food it makes you feel good It it's a it is a reward system our body is ingenious in rewarding us for these things because it just wants to survive. You know? Just just like the plants do. That's that is all they want to do. They don't care about anything else. All they want to do is reproduce and they'll try to grow anywhere they can.
0: Well, something that I have found to be interesting about gardening is that a lot of the plants that are considered weeds or opportunists have, were actually plants that were brought over as either food or medicine plants at one time. So they establish easily, they grow fast, they grow on disturbed soil. It's great food source that you don't really have to work very hard for (laughs) if you're open to it. And I think that's somewhere that is really exciting to check out your website because so many of those plants are there and you, present them in a way that is absolutely exciting and appealing. Oh, thank you. I read something about purslane. That was one that I've always had a really hard time making into something delicious because of the texture.
1: Yeah, it won't be for everyone, but I tell you what, when you take a page from South America and you blanch it and then cook it and season it like you care, and then eat it in warm corn tortillas with a little bit of cheese is so good. You know, they're, <laughs> tacos de quelites are very traditional. Coming from a culinary background, I worked with many, many people from South America, all over South America. And when they would first be starting in the restaurant to help them feel comfortable, something I started to do was I would ask them about verdolagas and i would see an instant change they're like oh hefe knows verdolagas. this guy isn't that bad i like this place i might stay because everyone would have a story oh grandma made them this way oh so-and-so made them this way oh and then they just go on and on about how they love them and it you know i thought that was just that was just really wonderful and it, it inspired me i didn't love it at first either but it inspired me to give it another chance And to really, to try to work hard to to honor it and to honor the culinary traditions that it has as a traditional food. Mm
0: -hmm. The other thing I was curious in reading through your book, how did you source all of this information from all of these different cultures? It couldn't have all been in English.
1: No. So I would say I'm proficient. I can understand culinary text from French, Italian, and Spanish. So, I have a number of books, especially in Italian, that are only available in Italian. Books on Italian wild plants, obviously, they're, they're probably better in Italian. There is other information. I mean, my cookbook collection is massive. It's always been a problem. Uh, and just buying really specific regional books that are in English, those are very, very helpful. I will have multiple books on the same place. I have like six books on Apulia alone because I'm, I'm using that to cross-reference things. I'm looking for variations in, say, okay, uh, fave e chicoria, or foge embiche, two different names for the same dish, which is cooked wild chicory or wild asters or bitter greens with fava bean puree. And it's one of the most, it's like cornerstones of uh, Apulian wild food cooking and uh, cucina povra. So I, I look... All over. Some of the texts might be English. Some of them might be in different languages. I look everywhere I can. Uh, I have a cookbook made. One of my favorites is made by Toulouse Lautrec. And he's a French painter who made a book. And he has paintings of all the different things he's talking about. And then instructions for making things like trout with chanterelles and, and other things. And it's really just a beautiful but very obscure. A lot of my stuff is extremely obscure. And I might be looking at, I use online resources a lot and Google Translate as well. And YouTube also is, YouTube is a goldmine of traditional food because the beut- one of the beautiful things, I have a love-hates relationship with social media and like smartphones. I think we're connected to them too much. But one thing that it's done is things like smartphones, have united and made available information especially about traditional foods to anyone around the world from extremely remote locations. You can watch, you can go on YouTube and watch someone in the Mihuacan Peninsula in Mexico harvest lobster mushrooms and make tacos out of them as a meat substitute because the mushrooms known as the trombo de puerco, the pork horn. You can see all kinds of different things. So a lot of times I will find instances of traditional foods in, you know, kind of falling down rabbit holes like that, and then I'll look for literature that I think might cover it, and, mm-hmm. I'll, and I'll order it and consume it, or find any other resources that I can. So I just like with wild food, I use a multifaceted kind of dynamic approach to looking for information, bits and pieces. Scientific literature is helpful too, a lot of the terminology I can't understand, but I can understand some of it and this, and the parts that I do are very helpful which is kind of where my being proficient in a couple languages purely for culinary reasons is helpful.
0: And I suppose using the the scientific nomenclature is another
1: is another part. Yes. Useful. Absolutely. That was really helpful especially when I was going through for the book like a uh, I had this one study that was called Mediterranean food plants and nutraceuticals and it lists common names and Latin names for like all kinds of different plants. So then I can use the common names to find like regional and super localized references and then cross-reference that with the scientific name and it's like you know instantly what's going on even if you can't read half of the article.
0: Mm -hmm. So how can people find your book?
1: It's sold wherever good books are sold. Uh, Sam Thayer's company, I know it's totally a canned response, Sam Thayer's company Forager's Harvest sells it too. I like to point people there so they can support him too. You get it right from Chelsea Green. And there's a whole list of different options on my website too, which is foragerchef.com.
0: And I heard that it's the first of a series. Is that true?
1: Yes, it's the first in the series. I don't know when the other ones are going to come out yet because I'm, I got really busy after the first book came out. Mm-hmm. But it'll be flora, fungi, and fauna. And so vegetables, mushrooms, and meat respectively. And it's they're named after the tasting menus. We had a flora and fauna tasting menu that I did that I cooked on my station at Heartland. So just kind of a nod to one of the chefs that trained me and one of my role models and a guy that I respect a heck of a lot.
0: Is there anything else that you'd want to let people know about foraging?
1: Get outside and discover plants.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was really lovely talking to you.
1: Yeah, for sure. You too.
0: Thanks for listening. All links are in the show notes. I highly recommend Alan's website and book for all kinds of foraging insights and wild food deliciousness. If you're enjoying the content, please consider heading over to CarmenPorter.com and joining my mailing list. I send out an email with plant tips, garden insights, and latest news. I'm always eager to connect with other plant people, so don't hesitate to reach out and let me know what's growing well for you. Happy harvesting!